This is Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Hi, this is Bob Johnston, and you're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio, 89.5 FM and 92.5 FM in good old McLean County and Bloomington Normal, 88.3 in Pontiac, 97.1 in Lincoln, 89.1 in DeKalb, Sycamore. We're going to have a great show for you today. I'm here with my wife, Lynn. I always want to remind you that we are brought to you by you, and uh, your donations are very important to us. And uh, it uh, makes our show and it makes the whole radio station and everything that we do possible. So anything that you can give is always appreciated. If you'd like to make a donation of some kind, you can go to our website and that's catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's catholicspiritradio.com. It will tell you how to make a donation and uh, it will also give you more information about ourselves. It's a very interesting site, so go there, and uh, if you can possibly do so, please make a donation. If you would like to call us, our number is 309-807-2427. Again, that's 309-807-2427, but if you can go to our website, that would be the best place to go, and it would tell you how to make a donation right there. It makes it very easy for you. We do have some events coming up. Remember, on September 29th and September 30th, uh, Spirit Radio is sponsoring a trip to Canton, Ohio, where we will visit the Mother Angelica Museum and learn a lot about uh, Mother Angelica and about EWTN, which, of course, uh, Spirit Radio broadcasts most of EWTN, and uh, we broadcast 24-7, and EWTN also helps make our... our uh, radio station possible because it gives us a lot of our material. So you'll find some interesting things there and a lot about Mother Angelica. They'll also be visiting the Rhoda Weiss home. And uh, she is a lady uh, whose vision uh, inspired Mother Angelica to lead the life that she led and led to her founding EWTN. And so you'll be visiting there as well. There's a shrine there. And uh, also, you'll be visiting St. Mary of Woodshrine uh, in Indiana. And the bus goes to every one of these places and makes it very easy to visit each one without doing a whole lot of walking. Uh, and it's available for everybody, uh, even people who are handicapped uh, can go on a trip like this. So consider going. And uh, again, go to our website. It will tell you a lot more about the trip and how you can make reservations to go. Right, and before we go get to uh, Canton, they're going to stop it in Indiana at uh, the shrine, shrine, the shrine, the shrine of Saint Greeny. Is it? Is it? I'm not if, Grin. Garen. Garen. Okay. Oh, that, I'm way off. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That she was kind of a pioneer nun, actually, when she. Traveled uh, across the ocean and came back, came here to set up this school system yeah. in uh, near Terre Haute. Exactly, and uh, it was quite a trip across the ocean. And she, uh, that was back in the early 1800s, about 1840 or so, a little bit earlier maybe than that. And then she made the trip from uh, New York, I think, landed at New York, right, and then traveled overland all the way to Indiana, right on the Wabash River, or very near the Wabash River at Terre Haute there. And uh, uh, it was so, a rough trip because they didn't have roads even. Exactly. You know, 
back then. That's a period of Abraham Lincoln living in the log house. So it's quite a trip, and you'll see all of those things. And so check into our website and find out more about that. And also, you can listen to our programs, and there will be more information given uh, out on our broadcasts all about the trip and uh, what's what you'll be able to see and what's there and the, t- the guides and stuff that will take you around, and, and you'll learn an awful lot and see an awful lot. So it's something you really want to look into. But uh, is there anything else, uh, Lynn, that you would like to comment on? No, I really, really think everybody should consider whether they can go on the trip or not and let us know because we need to fill, decide what size of bus to get by the 18th. So, you know, really consider it. I think it's going to be a wonderful trip for you. Yes, it will. At any rate, uh, the show today, we want to talk a little bit more about we missed last week. Lynn and I were off last week and uh, uh, had some things that uh, came up. And so we did uh, the week before that, we did a show uh, on the after row uh, situation, after the row decision or after the Dobbs uh, decision and uh, what now. And uh, I mentioned that if I was able to, I would read something, uh, an article from First Things Magazine uh, by R.R. Reno, the editor, and it was entitled Life Wins. And we got into so much discussion and so forth about uh, the the Dobbs decision and afterwards and so forth that we didn't get to that article. So I'd like to do that today, and we're going to do that article. It's in uh, First Things Magazine, the August-September issue of uh, 2022. And uh, by R.R. Reno, the editor of the magazine, and we'll talk uh, about that and also about some of the other things that are are happening uh, because of the Dobbs decision after Roe. So we'll go ahead and start with that. And uh, so I'm going to read from Life Wins and discuss it and then go into some of the other things that are uh, effects of uh, the decision that has just been made. So in the article Life Wins, uh, R.R. Reno says, The decision by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade offers great encouragement. The justices in a majority detailed technical reasons to support their ruling, reasons arriving from their theory of constitutional interpretation. And people should understand this, that this was a a ruling that restored a proper understanding of our Constitution. It was not aimed specifically at ending abortion. It was aimed at correcting a tortured and convoluted understanding of the Constitution in the first place. In other words, the uh, article, uh, I mean, the the ruling, uh, Roe versus Wade, the, almost 50 years ago, uh, was not in keeping really with our Constitution. It was more of a, uh, a pushing of an elite idea upon the people of the United States by people who wanted to reach that ruling regardless of what the Constitution itself said. And uh, that's been bothering people. In fact, it's actually bothered people that were in favor of abortion uh, and uh, even some of the justices on the Supreme Court who favored abortion, but at the same time said that the uh, arrival at the uh, decision was a bad, bad uh, idea for the Constitution. And so that's what they were aiming at. And people should understand that they were not aiming at simply abolishing, uh, you know, the uh, abortion 
or aiming it at abortion. It was aimed at restoring the Constitution to its proper understanding. So with that, we'll go on. And it goes on here, it says, but Justice Alito, author of the majority opinion, often adverts to the moral reality of abortion, in spite of the fact that he was aiming this decision at correcting the Constitution, he still took into consideration the uh, moral reality of abortion as well. It involves the taking of an innocent life. His majority opinion does not require the laws of our country to respect the sanctity of life from conception to natural death. In other words, states can still have abortion. But the point is, is that he says in that the Constitution not only should not be twisted in order to come, you know, to a constitutional decision along that line, but he is also saying that even states should consider uh, when they are pass laws concerning abortion, they can, should consider the fact how serious it really is, uh, because we're talking about lives at stake here. So he goes, that matter will be decided by uh, state legislatures, but the Dobbs decision removes the scandal of Roe, a misbegotten judgment that found a right of privacy, and later in Casey, a liberty interest that could not function without a systematic denial of the sanctity of life. After Dobbs, we move to a new political, moral, and even spiritual situation. Roe was part of a decade-long usurpation of the democratic process. After World War II, liberal elites were imbued with confidence in social progress, and they were frustrated by the cultural immobility of the American public. Earl Warren was a California Republican with progressive commitment, commitments, a not uncommon species in mid-century America. His appointment as Chief Justice inaugurated a period of judicial activism that had bipartisan support among the great and the good. In other words, there were a lot of elite people, that is, people who uh, wanted to push certain what they called progressive ideas and uh, were uh, not happy with the idea that most of the people in America, the ordinary people, uh, went along with the culture that they had been brought up in and didn't want to move in that direction. And so it was not possible actually to get things done by the democratic process. These people, these elites were looking for a way to circumvent the democratic process. So it's sort of strange that the uh, pro-choice people or the, the people who are uh, angry with uh, the decision of the Supreme Court and the Dobbs decision, it's strange that they are saying that uh, this kills democracy. It doesn't kill democracy, it restores democracy. Because in the first place, they could not get a decision like Roe by the democratic process. They went around that process by distorting the uh, Constitution itself in order to arrive at their decision. So what we're talking about here is a restoration of democracy, not uh, trampling on democracy. And he goes on, he says, In the signal instance of civil rights for black Americans, the activism was justified. And yet not, not all agreed even with that. Uh, Hannah Arendt famously criticized the Brown Board of Education as a suspect venture into social engineering. In other words, it wasn't that Hannah Arendt was against the direction of Brown Board of Education. That is, 
that blacks or anyone else uh, as a citizen of this country should have access to all of our educational institutions. They certainly should. But uh, she criticized the way that the uh, the decision was arrived at with the Constitution. And I agree with that. I, I think that uh, it was easy enough just to say, in, instead of the convoluted way they went about arriving at Brown versus Board of Education, uh, it could have just been said that, look, uh, separate but equal isn't working. And it, it may be separate, but it's not equal. And so all citizens in the United States should have equal access to the institutions they pay taxes for. And that would have been good enough. But they didn't do that. They actually, and I won't go into it here, but they actually came up with a uh, a different way of arriving at Brown versus Board of Education that enabled you know blacks to use all of the institutions, and uh, it was along the same lines type type of thinking that went along with Roe, and so she protested to it not because she protested against blacks being given the right to go to any institution that their taxes pay for, but because the decision was not arrived at in keeping with our constitution. So this is what the, this this whole issue, Dobbs, also is all about. It's not about simply taking a stand on one side of abortion or the other. And it goes on here. But the accident, activism did not stop there. Supreme Court decisions in the early 1960s drove religion out of the public schools. In other words, we have a constitution that says there should be a separation of church and state. That means that we shouldn't be passing laws somehow that support a particular church or support uh, a particular religion or support religion in general with public money and so forth. But goodness gracious, it doesn't mean that people can't uh, read Bibles or talk about God or or uh, draw conclusions from religions and so forth about other things in our public school. But it pretty much made it almost impossible at all to even refer to religion or Christianity or biblical things uh, in our public schools. In other words, religion was driven from the public square, and that certainly doesn't, uh, it, it's supposed to be separated, not driven away from the public square. By the end of the decade, women's rights and then gay rights became elite concerns. Today, it's transgender rights. And these rights could never have been arrived at through de- the democratic process. They are arrived at by by court decisions and, in some cases, Supreme Court decisions. And uh, these are things that are pushed on the American people, uh, usually against their will and not by the democratic process at all. It says, from Griswold, which struck down limitations on the sale of birth control, through Roe to Obergefell, a strategy of judicial activism amplified by aggressive and creative implementation by the administrative state, was pursued to overcome popular opposition. As Daryl Paul shows in his close study of the history of gay liberation, from, in, in the book was called From Tolerance to Equality, How Elites Brought America to the Same-Sex Marriage, elites embraced the sexual revolution far more enthusiastically than did the general public. The powerful were not about to make concessions, and activist organizations Law school legal clinics and media allies use the courts to bring the public along. And uh, this is certainly not a democratic process to try and somehow twist our laws and twist the Constitution into going in the direction that you want to go because you know you can't get it done by the voting method, by the, by the democratic method. 
the judiciary serves as a natural power base for elites. Matters of law turn on minute and complex arrangements that draw upon detailed and extensive legal traditions, documents, and precedents. Only a highly trained and specialized class of people is competent to engage in judicial debates, exactly the class of people allied with elites in other domains of life. Therefore, those at the top of society, insofar as they control the judicial branch, have a natural wish to translate matters of political debate, which is open to democratic influence, into questions of legality, which fall under the purview of experts. In other words, elites use the law to get around the ordinary people who depend upon the democratic process. That is, you know, having a proposition put before them and then voting on it and deciding uh, what they want. Elites, knowing that in many cases what they want accomplished will never uh, fly that way. They'll never get it through the democratic process. They'll never get people to vote in favor of it, get around it by using the law. And then once something has the power of law behind it, eventually people who feel incompetent to do so quit bucking it. And after a while, it gets to be taken as the norm, and the people who do it get to be taken as the so-called right side or settled side. And the people who didn't agree with it in the first place, sometimes way in the majority, are always in effect on the outside, somehow or another, uh, seen as attacking what has been settled law. In other words, the weight of the law uh, unfairly gives the people who get something done that way uh, a... A, a stand or a base uh, that is stronger, firmer, and uh, easier to defend. In other words, uh, the other people uh, are in a, in a situation or a position in which they are always on the outside attacking something that's already in existence, and that's always harder uh, to get done. In fact, the Dobbs decision seems sometimes like some kind of a miracle. No one, no one really expected it. But it had to be done again by justices of the Supreme Court through the matter of law. At any rate, we're going to have to stop here and take a break. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Catholic parishes in central Illinois will soon begin their RCIA courses. RCIA, the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults, is a course designed for anyone interested in learning more about the Catholic faith or living it more fully. Perhaps your spouse is Catholic and you have long considered entering the Catholic Church. Maybe you're an active Catholic who has not received all the sacraments of Christian initiation. Perhaps you left the Catholic Church long ago and want your questions and concerns answered before returning. Maybe you're a non-Catholic Christian or not a Christian at all and want to know more about the Catholic Church and the one true God. If any of these circumstances is like your own, then RCIA is just what you need. RCIA classes typically include presentations, discussions, prayer, and fellowship. Contact a Catholic parish near you today for details and to register. Be certain to tell others and feel free to bring a friend. 
The next Catholic Spirit Radio pilgrimage is September 29th through 30th. We'll be going to Canton, Ohio, the hometown of Mother Angelica. We'll tour the Mother Angelica Museum and visit the Rhoda Weiss Miracle House. Rhoda had the stigmata and interceded for the curing of Mother's physical ailment. This bus trip also includes a tour of St. Mother Theodore Guerin Shrine at St. Mary of the Woods, Indiana. Check the Catholic Spirit Radio website for details. Hi, this is Bob Johnston. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. We're back from our break. We're talking about uh, uh, abort the abortion decision, the Dobbs decision, and we're talking about uh, what happens after Roe. And I'm reading from an article here in uh, First Things Magazine written by R.R. Reno, the editor of that magazine, called Life Wins. And he's talking about how Roe and other decisions were arrived at through legal maneuvering rather than through the democratic process and how the, the Constitution itself was twisted and misused to arrive at, at these decisions and circumvent the people themselves and circumvent the democratic process. And so it seems ironic that there are people who are saying that the decision by the Supreme Court somehow or another overturns the democratic process. It doesn't. It returns the democratic process to the people where it belongs and takes it away from the elites uh, using the intricacies of the law to get what they want. The article goes on. The advantages of turning political controversies into judicial concerns involves more than the control of outcomes. A progressive minority secured an open-ended right to abortion when Roe was decided in 1973. This outcome provided them with an important political advantage during the ensuing decades. For ownership of the legal status, quo, confers the presumption of legitimacy. And this is what I was talking about a little bit earlier. It makes it harder once the law is involved and, and something somebody has the law on their side. It makes it harder for people to disagree and get it overturned. In the aftermath of Roe, pro-life activists had to raise the issue of abortion explicitly. This opened them uh, to charges of extremism. And this is sort of strange because in, in our country, let's, let's look at what Lincoln said in his Gettysburg speech, that you know, we're supposed to have a government you know, of the people, by the people, for the people. And it's, in other words, the people are supposed to be the ones who decide on huge issues like abortion. And that wasn't the case at all. It was the elites through the law, through the Supreme Court, that decided on that issue. So again, this is what he's talking about. And then they get the power of the law on their side, and it makes it look as if the people somehow are, are outside the law trying to undo something that's been settled by the law, but it really hasn't been settled in the properly democratic way. And this is actually what the... Uh, justices on the Supreme Court were doing in Dobbs. They were returning it to the democratic way and uh, avoiding the misuse of the Constitution. goes on here. It says, proponents of the right to abortion could describe their political opponents as divisive and blame them for political polarization. That's exactly what happened, even though uh, the people themselves were circumvented. They didn't have a chance to weigh in on such a decision. The controlling op opinion for Casey 
which upheld Roe, not so subtly implied that those who continued to oppose the abortion license were bad citizens who undermine our constitutional system, when it really was the other way around. It was people who were using legalities and twisting the Constitution itself in order to arrive at decisions that uh, bypass the people. Meanwhile, those who supported abortion could speak of our settled constitutional law, employ euphemisms such as women's uh, health, and otherwise avoid bringing the ugly reality of abortion to the attention of voters. If we would have had a conversation about abortion, and if we are now having abortion decisions made by state uh, legislatures, there will be a conversation and there will be evidence presented on either side of the rightness or wrongness of such legal decisions. And the ugliness of abortion will be able to come to the surface where it was bypassed with decisions made through the means uh, of the Supreme Court, such as Roe. Now the terrain has shifted. One sees the consequences of the loss of control over the legal status quo in the minority opinion in Dobbs. Justices Kagan, Breyer, and Sotomayor spoke of abortion as a backstop. By their reasoning, Roe secures an indispensable right, one that is necessary for safeguarding the full and equal partition of women in contemporary American society. It's a striking claim. Women can thrive only if they have the right to take lives. Uh, it is now, you know, uh, a means and it's not a choice itself. In other words, Roe made it look as if somehow or another women had a right, a special right to choose and avoided this whole idea of uh, unless women can abort their, their babies, that somehow they are second class citizens. That wasn't the argument. But now that the Roe decision has been overturned and uh, it, it will go, uh, it will be up to state legislatures to decide whether abortion is legal or illegal, uh, it won't be the same way. Uh, the arguments already are coming out not about abortion itself, but about the fact that abortion is a means for somehow or another women to have uh, the same uh power in contemporary society as men do, that somehow or another having babies takes that away from them. And so the whole idea of abortion is not a woman's choice in that sense of her bo over her body, but it's somehow or another uh, a means of making women equal in uh, jobs and in careers and other things in society. And that's a whole different argument and a whole different situation. It goes on here. It says, uh, Affirming this claim in such an explicit way is surely painful for anyone concerned about the well-being of women in modern society. What kind of ideal of justice for women or any other class of citizens requires a death-dealing backstop? Other voices are less temperate than those of dis dissenting justices in recent justices in recent years. Defenders of the abortion license have shifted from Bill Clinton's safe, legal, and rare to the saying, shout your abortion, and other slogans meant to portray the taking of innocent life as a positive good. And isn't that also what happened with slavery? 
At one time, slavery was considered a necessary evil, and hopefully it would go away, and it was only temporary, and it would just be until the country could get through uh, certain needs and, and so forth, and it would die away all by itself. Well, it went from that to all of a sudden a positive good. In fact, uh, the South made claims that the uh, slavery was actually good for the people who were enslaved, not only for the good of society. It became a positive good. And this is the same thing that happened with abortion. Once you legalize something, people start finding more and more positive ways to defend it and uh, start rejecting the, the idea that somehow it has negative aspects, and they start finding that it has uh, positive as- aspects and it's, and it's necessary. And the two things are the same. They, they both happen that way. Uh, it goes on here, it says, and legislative measures have been extreme. In 2019, the New York legislature codified the Roe regime, which in practice means that abortion is permitted until the time of birth. New York Governor Kathy Hochul recently allocated $35 million to provide special assistance to abortion providers, and there is a proposal to subsidize women's travel to New York to procure abortions. In other words, somehow it's a positive good to have an abortion, and uh, it's not somehow a, a necessary evil. In New York City, Homeless men, homeless men urinate in doorways and drug addicts shoot up in public at midday. And the subways, of course, I'll, I'll add myself here, are filthy and full of feces and uh, make people sometimes who are naked and, and uh, just all kinds of horrors that people have to face if they are forced to ride the subway. In the face of these realities, Holchel's commitments of resources to ensure the wide availability of abortion services seems more than a little perverse. The contrasts are even starker in Illinois, right here in our home state. As the death toll of gun violence increases on Chicago's south side, Governor J.B. Pritzker has called for a special legislative session to address not the murder rate, not the gun violence, but the reproductive rights. Can you imagine that? No. One need not believe that life begins at conception to recognize the ugliness of abortion. One need not think about abortion immoral in order to acknowledge that something deeply tragic about a woman's terminating the new life in her womb. Whatever the reasons, whatever the circumstances, after Dobbs, those who want to ensure the right to choose must be more visibly pro-abortion. This this change will unsettle the vast middle ground of opinion on the matter. Most people do not wish to confront the truth that Justice Alito repeats a number of times. Abortion requires the taking of a life. Under Roe, they could simply argue, they could simply acquiesce, rather, in the legal regime. Dobbs removes this prop for the abortion license. Going forward... Pro-abortion forces must rally the median American voter to support their goals, and this will require speaking directly about what they want, namely a plenary right for women to terminate the life within them. This will make the activists who inveigh against Dobbs and conjure Handmaid's Tale nightmares seem like extremists. In other words, it'll put the shoe on the other foot, the people who are trying to 
uh, promote abortion will seem like extremists because they are the ones now who will have to argue against the law and make their case by presenting evidence of what they want done. They will bear the stigma of being divisive. The shoe is on the other foot. And I predict that given the importance of the rule of law as a stabilizing center point for any political consensus, polling will show a decided shift in public opinion. As the pro-abortion minority rages, today's narrowly divided electorate will evolve toward one that is more solidly pro-life. We already know this, that most people, you know, don't believe in abortion right up to the to birth. And most people believe in restriction abortion to an early time in the pregnancy and have that believe that already. And things will shift a lot more in that direction. It may not be as far in a direction that we as Catholics want to go, but nevertheless, it will be a much better direction than uh, it is right now. When a protest movement triumphs, it must pivot from opposition to governance. This holds for the pro-life movement. We need not accept the pinch notion that women are fulfilled only if they have advanced degrees and highly powered careers. But we do need to think about how to make our society more congenial to childbearing and childrearing and pursue policies that have some promise of achieving that goal. In Sexual Counter-Revolution, Scott Yender detailed the ways in which elite-sponsored changes in culture, many imposed by judicial power, as was the case with Roe, have disordered the lives of men and women. The harms done are becoming evident, not least in the effects of transgender ideology on adolescents. How can we make our way back to sanity is not evident, unfortunately. But dismantling the anti-discrimination legal regime that empowers activists might be a good place to start. When it comes to sex, the well-funded anti-discrimination industry has done far more harm than good to women, with the exception of elite women over the last 50 years. But even the elite cohort may face a bitter reckoning as the ranks of single and childless high-achieving women grow and age. Family policy offers a more congenial avenue for change. Some pro-life Republican senators, such as Mitt Romney and Josh Hawley, have proposed dramatic increases in government support for households with children. The merits of these proposals, of course, should be carefully weighed. But we cannot dither. We have to do something to make childbearing, child-raising, and having a family a lot easier in our society. The victory of Dobbs puts a burden on us to spearhead changes. Whether it is extended maternity leave, increased tax benefits, educational vouchers, or even enhanced benefits reserved for married parents, something needs to be done. We could have a better tax policy toward married married parents, in my opinion. Uh, A far higher deductible for raising children, in my opinion, would be good. Uh, Much of the taxes that we pay, of course, we understand, go to a lot of uh, wasted efforts and and wasted projects that uh, do more harm to our society than good, allowing people to have be more comfortable to raise their children by a tax policy that doesn't take everything that they earn from them would be a good policy, in my opinion. To be pro-life necessarily means being pro-family, which in turn means being pro-marriage. In the months to come, first things will be part of the pivot from protest to governance. 
We hope to publish essays that venture ambitious proposals, both for the sensible moral re-regulation of our society and for government measures to provoke marriage and family. And again, I think that there should be government measures, but it would be probably far better to have those measures follow tax policy and let people free to follow their own policy in their own culture and their own uh, ethics and morals as to how to raise their families. So that would be one of the ones, in my opinion, that would be the best way to do something like this, rather than coming up with a lot of government programs that will shovel money to the people that manage them and very little to the people that are managed. So that's my opinion on that. But the point is, is that this is going to be one of the big changes that is going to come about under uh, the, the Dobbs decision and is going to come about after Roe. And one of the things that the Catholics are going to be involved in and pro-life people are going to be involved in. So there is going to be a shift for the people who were pro-choice and pro-abortion, but there also is going to be a shift for the people who are pro-life. They are going to be on a different side of the argument, and they are going to also have to be proposing things that will help restore the culture that we had and maybe make things better for families uh, in the long run than even before rule. So there's a lot of good things that can come from this decision, even though the decision was made strictly to restore our Constitution to its proper role and to get rid of a decision by the courts that actually convoluted and twisted that Constitution. So I'm going to go ahead and stop here and take a break. We'll come back uh, and finish uh, the rest of the discussion about this issue and maybe a few more other issues as well. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Catholic parishes in central Illinois will soon begin their RCIA courses. RCIA, the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults, is a course designed for anyone interested in learning more about the Catholic faith or living it more fully. Perhaps your spouse is Catholic and you have long considered entering the Catholic Church. Maybe you're an active Catholic who has not received all the sacraments of Christian initiation. Perhaps you left the Catholic Church long ago and want your questions and concerns answered before returning. Maybe you're a non-Catholic Christian or not a Christian at all and want to know more about the Catholic Church and the one true God. If any of these circumstances is like your own, then RCIA is just what you need. RCIA classes typically include presentations, discussions, prayer, and fellowship. Contact a Catholic parish near you today for details and to register. Be certain to tell others and feel free to bring a friend. The next Catholic Spirit Radio pilgrimage is September 29th through 30th. We'll be going to Canton, Ohio, the hometown of Mother Angelica. We'll tour the Mother Angelica Museum and visit the Rhoda Weiss Miracle House. Rhoda had the stigmata and interceded for the curing of Mother's physical ailment. This bus trip also includes a tour of St. Mother Theodore Guerin Shrine at St. Mary of the Woods, Indiana. Check the Catholic Spirit Radio website for details. Hi, this is Bob Johnson. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. We're talking about the Dobbs decision, and we're talking about after Roe. We're talking about the fact that uh, Roe brings an entire change to the whole uh, abortion issue, and uh, it will put the shoe on the other foot as far as making a case for abortion. 
And it will also, in a sense, put the shoe on the other foot as well uh, for the pro-life people to suggest changes in our society that uh, need to be made in order to better accommodate uh, uh, having of children and the raising of families. And uh, there is a article here, a follow-up article uh, to Rara Reno's uh, Life Wins, and that article is called Signs of Restoration. And he's talking here about the fact that even before this decision, there seemed to be signs of restoration of people uh, starting to push back against the wokeism of our age and against the, the direction that our country is going, and uh, hopefully that uh, some kind of progress can be made along these lines uh, to return our country to a better position than it occupies now, and maybe also to re not only restore, but to create uh, new uh, ways of uh, improving our society. It says here, Nicodemus was a Pharisee who was curious about Jesus. The signs and wonders were undeniable. But Nicodemus remained skeptical about some of the teachings of the rabbi from Nazareth. <clears throat> Aren't we doomed to travel down the grooves set by our past? How can those who are old be born again? We're often more like Nicodemus than we're willing to admit. Secularism seems our inevitable fate. The number of those professing no religious allegiance rises. The woke revolution crashes through many beloved institutions like storm-driven waves breaking on the shore. Clerical abuse scandals demoralize. Church leaders are often paralyzed, unable to speak clearly and forcefully, even as ideologies such as transgenderism directly contradict natural and biblical truths. Uh, it's easy to fixate on the negative trends. They cause us to wonder, how can a faith that has grown old and feeble be born again? But Jesus warns Nicodemus not to presume that the principalities and powers that rule this world dictate the future. The wind blows where it will, he observes. Beware the foolish conceit that we know what God can and cannot do, even with the unpromising material of fallen men. We do well to remind ourselves that the one who rules all things has definitively announced, Behold, I make all things new. Reno goes on, he says, I don't pretend to know what God has in store for the churches in America, but in my travels and conversations, I sense stirrings of life. Something is happening, something new, something renewing. A small item, young women are recovering the old practice of veiling their heads during worship. Those whom I observe are not eccentric traditionalists at furtive Tridentine masses. They are university students and young professionals. I see them at parishes that have reputations for dignified worship and orthodox preaching. The numbers are not large. It's a small minority. But to see even a few arrest my attention. It was only yesterday that there was none. And I'll remind people here... Uh, if you want to be radical, really, really, really radical, be traditional and be orthodox, and you'll find yourself really being at odds with the direction in which society is going. He goes on, I know a few priests in university ministries. They report modest upticks in mass attendance and significant increases in students asking to go to confession. One told me, 
Millennials and Gen Xers tend to think they know all the answers. Gen Z kids aren't so sure. They know that they have not been given anything solid and reliable. The apostolic faith embodied in the life and liturgy of the church promises a life-giving truth that can be trusted. Perhaps that is why the Harvard Catholic Center, a chaplaincy for undergraduate and graduate students at Harvard and nearby academic institutions, brought in more than 30 people into the Catholic Church at the Easter Vigil this past April. Another priest reports that university students are ready to trust clergy. They don't seem affected by the clerical abuse scandal. At the same time, they're not in awe of the priesthood. They live amid the spiritual and emotional wreckage of today's society. In an emergency room, there's little time for elaborate formalities. Younger priests are realistic as well. Few harbor the puerile desire, so common among the clerical cohort, now sunsetting, to project an anti-clerical aura. I've always found clerical anti-clericalism distasteful. It's rather like a man, a vain man, boosting his ego by officiously insisting upon his humility. Those ordained during the last 20 years have a keen sense of the hostility of secular society. And again, unlike those now retiring, they are aware that the church has spent down a great deal of her moral and spiritual capital through negligent experimentation and widespread pusillanimity. And of course, they know that the clerical old boy system, which in many dioceses continues to persecute younger Orthodox priests, protected sexual abuses. Because of the resulting lawsuits, this smug, insular, and arrogant cabal has financially bankrupted the church. And yet all of this seems not to daunt the younger cohort. They express the utmost confidence in the supernatural character of their vocation, which they hope to uphold and embody. As I reflect on what I see in the Catholic Church, I have to laugh when I read about Pope Francis's intemperate remarks concerning restoration in America. This attitude, he says, has come to gag the Second Vatican Council. Gag the Council? I sincerely doubt that any of the young people who entered the Catholic Church at Harvard have an opinion about the Second Vatican Council pro or con. The same is true for those attending a Tridentine Mass. To be sure, many have a sense that things went wrong after the Council. They're not blind, and they're attracted to resourcement, the return to various aspects of traditional practices that give weight and substance to Catholic life. They're not stupid. A young friend finds the Latin Mass appealing. He responded with bafflement when I asked about his views on Vatican II. Good grief, he said. My parents weren't even born then. And, and this is the attitude, this idea that Vatican II is so important. A lot of young people don't even know much about Vatican II. They do know that things are in a mess in secular society, and a lot of things are in a mess in the church as well, and they are looking back to our tradition, and a lot of them are beginning to understand how important it is, and they want it back. He goes on, I have to wonder what the Holy Father could be thinking. Are we, suppose, are we to suppose that the spirit of Vatican II opposes the always necessary, always ongoing restoration of the church? The fall of man imposes a bitter law of entropy on all our endeavors, including our noblest ones. The church is forever spending down her inheritance, 
neglect, neglecting her spiritual riches, forgetting her theological wisdom. It was not within the power of the Second Vatican Council to repeal this sad law of decay and dissolution. Only someone beholden to a religious ideology, rather than informed by a genuine theology, could look at the last 50 years and imagine that we don't need a strong dose of restorationism. And I certainly agree with that. What about you, Lynn? Well, if we're looking looking to our present leaders in the church, I'm not so sure that's going to happen. Well, it may be the fact that the— I mean, I agree it probably needs to happen, and the younger people are going to have to carry it through. And some of them are starting to show signs of doing just that, and that's what I think he's talking about. Well, that would be wonderful. And I've always said, if we're going to have a restoration in the church, it's going to have to be done by the laity and, uh, you know, the new uh, clergy coming up. And I think that's perhaps the way it's always been done. And we've been on a long roll in the, in the downward direction, not only in our church, but also, of course, in secular society as well. Right. And uh, it's good to see signs of restoration. And we have to understand, I think, look at uh, the Dobbs decision. Who would have believed that this was going to happen at this time? It seemed like the Roe versus Wade uh, situation was impervious that the Constitution was going to be interpreted this way, and there was no hope of changing it, and it was going to be almost an impossible fight to uh, reduce abortion. I agree with you there. That, you know, never would have dreamed that this would have happened, and it seems to have happened rather quickly. It has, and there are some other things. I've been reading here where, the people themselves, the, the pro-choicers, uh, the people who are pro-abortion, uh, re- the, the fact is, is that even perhaps without them realizing it, they have been redirected down different paths. There are more of them, you know, you see signs, there are more of these people starting to say, well, if we have a situation like we have now with this awful decision by the Supreme Court about uh, abortion with the Dobbs decision, then we're going to have to have more responsible women. Women are going to have to be more careful. Well, isn't that, isn't that exactly what the, you know, uh, restoring families is going to require? That, and they are also saying that, and men are going to be, have to be held more responsible for what they do. In other words, they're saying we can't have men impregnating women and then, you know, expecting them, you know, to get out of it simply by sending the women off for an abortion. And so, without even realizing it, they're redirected along the kinds of thinking that the pro-lifers, you know, were trying to get them to think before this decision. So, the decision is having an effect. Well, yes, I do. Yeah, I can see that. I just, maybe I'm pessimistic. I need to put more trust into what how the Lord works because it can be a real surprise to you what happens. Yes. This kind of is, too, you know. Who would have thought the Supreme Court would have ever come out and done this? Yes, it can. And who knows? It might it might scatter over into all of this, uh, you know, these ideas of, like, a, a transgender, for example, uh, that is going on right now. I mean, uh, and also, I'm going to talk about that, but also I just, want to, I just thought of it. Uh, there's this 
health scare that's going on right now. There's a lot of pro-choice people, and this even incorporates doctors and people in higher positions that are trying to pretend that the decision in Dobbs somehow or another endangers women because now that abortion supposedly is not an option, that uh, women will be subject to uh, the dangers of, of, of physical dangers of, you know, somehow of a, a pregnancy gone wrong. And, of course, that is not the case no, at all. It's ridiculous. They're even saying stuff like ectopic, ectopic pregnancies. Pregnancies, will, yes. You know, we won't be able to deal with them, that a woman will simply, you know, have to endure an ectopic pregnancy. And when I say this, ectopic, etopic. etopic pregnancy, it is where the fetus is developing outside the womb, usually, you know, in the, in the uh uh, I, I think it's in the umbilical cord itself. No, no, no. Or, it's in the fallopian tube. Oh, in tube. the fallopian tube. That's what I was trying to think of, in the fallopian tube itself. And, of course, you know, that's there's no way to save it. In other words, it's uh, that is going to burst, and it could be, you know, of course, it's going to kill the growing uh, fetus, and it also is going to be very, very dangerous for the woman. Very but, often those women uh, have to have a hysterectomy. Yeah, and the fact is is that all of this is perfectly legal. They can have the hysterectomy. They can have uh, the ectopic pregnancy terminated and removed. It's not considered an abortion. The, the, the baby isn't viable anyway in that case, really. And then there are other cases in which uh, a pregnancy can endanger a woman. There's actually, I think I've read where it's only four-tenths of one percent where these kind of things happen. And I'm not talking here just about atopic pregnancies. I'm talking about other physical endangerments uh, to a woman because of pregnancy. They're very rare. But if they do occur, the Dobbs decision in no way prevents uh, the medical profession from uh, intervening, intervening and even intervening with the pregnancy in order to save the, the life of the woman. If her, if, her, if her life is in physical danger, she's entitled to whatever medical treatments are necessary to remove her from that danger. And so this is another thing it's going to bring about. It's going to bring about the decision, a discussion of all these things, an understanding of just exactly, you know, what these issues are and uh, how often they really occur, which is rarely, and uh, what can be done about it. Uh, another uh, false issue, I think, in this health care is that somehow or another the Dobbs decision affects, uh, uh, you know, birth con- what we call birth control that women will no longer be able to uh, prevent pregnancy. Uh, yeah, it's simply it, a lie. And that's simply a lie. Uh, the, 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 the justices were very careful to point out that this is pointed at restoring the validity of the Constitution and that it, 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 the whole uh, decision affects abortion and it doesn't affect anything else. It doesn't affect the uh, so-called birth control or uh, any of the other areas in which these scares are being generated. So that's that's something as well. I don't know. Wouldn't, as a woman, wouldn't you like to be treated in uh, surroundings that are sterile and and, uh, pristine and not some sloppy backdoor place? Well, this will help, I think. To make that more possible, because the states that decide to have abortions are going to have to control the situation with in which the abortion occurs. 
Yeah, it will be an improvement. All, all even if you know if it's not everything that Catholics want, it will be a great improvement over what we have now, and then there will be much more safety for women than there is now, and uh, there will be these, these scares are simply scares. Uh, they're not uh, valid at all, and women will be entitled to whatever kind of treatment they need to deal with any endangerments uh, from uh, being pregnant. And uh, so we'll go from there, but we will have a discussion on it, and we will see exactly uh, where uh, abortion will land. There will probably be a lot of states that will repeal their uh, anti-abortion laws and permit abortion, but the abortions will be restricted uh, to different situations and circumstances and probably uh, be restricted after a, a certain period of time. That's not exactly what we want, but the thing is the momentum will be re- moving in the other direction. Right. It, it, it will be moving right. in a direction toward pro-life, and that that's uh, what we want. And so it's, uh, it's maybe undoing a lot of this that has been done. I think so, and I certainly pray so. I do, too. So at any rate, those are some of the things, and now we're finished with that topic. And uh, there'll be more on it, of course, in the future as we see how things unfold. There'll be a better discussion among people, and I think a lot of these uh, scares and so forth will die down, and uh, we'll we'll see a further and further change being wrought by what has uh, been done by the court in restoring our Constitution to its original understanding. At any rate... We're going to have to stop here. Uh, so we're going to have to say our prayer. St. Michael, Michael, the archangel, the archangel defend us in battle. Be our, be our protection, protection against, against the wickedness, wickedness and snares, snares of the, the devil. devil. May Make God rebuke him, we humbly, humbly pray. And, and do thou, thou Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all and evil spirits who wander through the world for the ruined souls. Amen. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. If you'd like to contact Bob, email bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Catholic Spirit Radio relies on your support to bring programming like this and EWTN 24 hours a day. Please help keep Catholic Spirit Radio on the air with your generous support. Donate online at catholicspiritradio.com or send a donation to Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. That's Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. Catholic Spirit Radio is a 501c3, and all donations are tax-deductible. Thank you for your support of Catholic Spirit Radio.